Good evening, everybody. This is Rich Duncan with Ink Heist, and tonight um, we have a very special show for you. Um, I'm happy to welcome Neil McRobert, who is the host of the Talking Scared podcast. Um, he's been doing it for about a year now, um, and he has almost 50 episodes out, but he had told me that he just recorded his 50th, which is a big milestone um, in podcasting. Um, so, Neil, um, real excited to have you on. Big fan of uh, Talking Scared and just wanted to uh, ask how you're doing tonight. I am very well and I'm delighted to be here. I um, I mean, that was very kind of you. But, but as I've said on Twitter, um, Ink Heist is, is one of the inspirations behind my own show. So, um it's always a little bit weird. I've done this a few times now where I've, I've guested on shows that I've been listening to for years and it feels slightly surreal to be in the hot seat. You know, it's all happened quite fast. Um, so, yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, yeah. And I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, we haven't we haven't done it as often as you, I don't think. Um, but, yeah, we were a guest on um, Dead Headspace, the podcast that uh, Patrick McDonough and Brennan LaFaro do. Um, and that, and we were the guests and it, it, that was kind of strange because, you know, you're so used to, uh, you know, you're so used to being in kind of the driver's seat, so to speak, and, you know, hearing what your guest has to say. And then when it gets turned around on you, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of surreal. Yeah. Cause I interview people who write, you know, masterworks of horror and they have, they have things to say. So, um, mm-hmm. it always feels a little bit like imposter syndrome when I'm the person talking about myself because I'm. I don't think I'm that interesting, um, but I will. I can just I can just litter this conversation with some well placed lies to kind of imp- make me seem more interesting. <laughs> yeah, I I know exactly. Um, I know exactly how you feel, and you know too. I appreciate the kind words um you said about our show, and I swear that this isn't a um, this isn't like an egotistical thing. But I was just kind of curious because you had mentioned that it was an inspiration. Um, and you don't really have to go into why our show particularly, but I was interested. Um, I think it's kind of interesting to kind of hear the backstory about how people get involved in podcasting. Um, so I was just curious. I know you started in uh, 2020, you know, kind yeah. of what spurred you to do a podcast? Had you been thinking about it for a while or was there, you know, like a certain event that maybe pushed you to want to do that? um basically i despise my job um (laughs) so uh yeah no right basically i I was obviously we we had a pandemic um and i I will ask you how your apocalypse has been as well when i answer this question um but i yeah i i was working from home we're all typical thing lockdown um and um I, i yeah i I hated my job and I quit my job um, to live the lifelong dream of, of writing a novel. So I've basically become a living cliche of a man. Um, <laughs> but then obviously I thought, you know, I've never written a novel before. I've written short fiction, published short fiction, but I thought I've never written a novel. Um, and it, it felt like an insurmountable goal. So I needed something that was um, something that could give me a weekly hit of success or at least of achievement. And I thought, well, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I mean, I'm, I'm a long distance runner. Um, so I listen to a lot of podcasts when I run. Um, and I thought, well, could I do that? And then I had this idea. The only thing I have any expertise in of any kind is horror fiction. Um, 
if you can call it expertise. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, it would be about that. And then I luckily, very luckily, I'd had a conversation um, a few years ago with Paul Tremblay, who, Mm -hmm. for reasons best known to himself, agreed to let a nobody from the north of England interview him um, when growing um, growing things came out. Um, and the interview, and it, it, we just took a, struck up a kind of rapport. And I, I wrote to Paul and said, "Look, I'm setting this podcast up. Would you be my first guest?" And he said yes graciously. And then he gave me John Langan's um, contact details. So John Langan was my second guest. And once I had those two booked in, it just became a bit of a steamroller that they opened all kinds of doors for me. Because when you write to a publisher saying, "I've just interviewed Paul Tremblay and John Langan. Would you like your novelist to be on my show?" They're much more likely to say yeah. Um, so that's the creative answer. But in short, I hated my job and wanted to do something creative. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a pretty cool origin story. Um, like I said, I'm I'm always fascinated by it because, you know, people do it for a variety of different reasons, and um, I won't uh, you know, beat our listeners over the head with our origin story, but it's just kind of funny that, you know, in, in a way, you know, Paul Tremblay kind of was, you know, one of the forces behind starting talking scared. And, you know, it was the same with us with, uh, John FD Teff, like it was something we always wanted to do, but it wasn't until, and he'll say that he didn't, but it wasn't until he kind of, you know, tricked us into it that we uh, ever gave it much thought. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting John on my show. Um, I don't think he knows this yet, but I'm talking to his publicist. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you know, he's got this Dark Stars compilation, um, sorry, collection coming out in the in in around Halloween. So I'm doing mm-hmm. a Halloween special with with John and some of the the, the uh, contributors to that collection, a bit of a round table. So, um, yeah, that's a nice bit of coming full circle. I speak to you and I speak to the guy who inspired your show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, that sounds really cool, like the uh, round table thing. And, you know, it, it's cool that, you know, like we had known John for quite a while um, just through our previous sites, because um, Shane and I, we used to have separate blogs mm-hmm. starting Heist, and then we kind of got tired of it just because it was a lot for, you know, us to do alone. Um, so we had known him for years and, you know, he's he's such a nice guy. And, you know, that's one of the cool things about, um, you know, a lot of the authors that you know, do our podcasts, you know, not just mine, but yours and everyone else's is, you know, they're, they're so open and, you know, willing to like come on people's shows to like promote their stuff, but also to, you know, support, you know, other people's creative endeavors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the same thing with uh, like Paul, you know, it doesn't surprise me that he was, uh, you know, willing to do that. Um, we had him on and he seems like a really nice guy. Um, we had him on, once and i'm sure it won't be the last time <laughs> yeah but paul's a great guy and john langan again john langan is, is an absolute gentleman scholar of horror that he knows mm-hmm. so much he has this this universal encyclopedic knowledge of how it all fits together as a tradition and him and him and john and him and paul were just a great two people to start off with and and the cool thing is that i'm really happy about because it's completely by accident is that the anniversary show is with Stephen Graham Jones. Um, mm-hmm. 
so it, it feels like because I, I always think of those three as kind of like the three gunslingers of of contemporary yeah. horror um and it's quite nice that on the anniversary of the first year i'm going to complete the uh the triptych so to speak by getting getting steven on the show <laughs> yeah that that'll be a pretty special episode and yeah it's it's you know i've heard through other podcasts you know especially um you know like paul and john langan like how close they are and sometimes they'll kind of uh you know send jokes to each other mm-hmm. like one will be on a podcast and then they'll know the others coming on <laughs> and they'll kind of like you know oh, tell john this or tell paul that yeah it, I, happened, I it, it happened on mine paul tremblay made me ask john yeah. Langan. you gotta remember how nervous i was back then i'd never interviewed these people and they were my heroes and paul demanded that i ask john why he feels incapable of writing about sex <laughs> I, I feel like i'm the patsy in a joke here that i don't really understand but i, I went along with it and it, it worked out okay yeah i i can only imagine um you know and first of all that is a pretty uh that's a pretty funny one that had to have been one hell of an icebreaker especially for <laughs> you know one of your first couple episodes yeah just a bit yeah <laughs> but um that's the other thing i wanted to ask um you know, because it's something that, you know, people tune into our shows and, you know, I don't know if they're interested in those kind of behind the scenes things. But, you know, I was just curious for you what it was like, you know, starting up and to where you are now, like in terms of like nerves, because I know how it was for me. I'm a bit, you know, I have a bit of like social anxiety and I get kind of like time. And I was just kind of curious, you know, what it was like for you for both the early days and you know kind of how you're going now that's an interesting question actually um well well right for a start anyone who listens to my show realizes that i mean you say you've got social anxiety that's i think that's the mm-hmm. one anxiety i don't have um <laughs> because my, my i am just a bundle of neuroses um i, I recently did a, did a kind of patreon only episode recently where i talked about the books that scared me the most and it, it turned against my will into a kind of free therapy session where i just talked about all the things that you know fought with my mind so i'm an i'm a bundle mm-hmm. of nerves all the time weirdly i don't get nervous doing the things that make most people nervous so public speaking is fine i can speak to a room hundreds of people not an issue and and talk to people one-on-one doesn't make me nervous what makes me really nervous is the technology because frankly i'm a luddite like i I, i've got a computer that i use about eight percent of what it can do i bought a mac i don't really know what gain is all these various things like i just i have like a mental block with anything technological um and I'm always terrified that I'm going to get a guest on the show, like some massive name, and the computer's going to let me down, or the Wi-Fi signal, or the audio. That makes me really nervous because it's it's out of my hands. Um, but as it's gone along, what what I've realised is that one, authors really like talking about their books, and they're incredibly mm-hmm. forgive, incredibly forgiving. Of like the other day, I had, I had Ronald Malfi on my show. I know you had him on yours recently, and yes. I just had not. I said because I told you off air because of the heat. I have this, the Wi-Fi around in my area has just gone kaput, and I just couldn't talk to him. We just couldn't hear each other. So I had to kind of rearrange for the few days later. And in the early days, that would have just sent me into a tailspin. But now I'm just kind of like you know, it is what it is. These people are 
you know, very generous with their time and very kind and forgiving. And I think as my show gets a little bit bigger, I feel like I've got something to bring to them as well as them doing me a favor. And I think that has slightly mm-hmm. changed things where I no longer feel like I'm just getting charity off people. I feel like I'm offering them at least some tiny amount of platform that I can offer. Um, but you know what I mean? I spoke to Joe Lansdale and that's nerve wracking because it's fucking Joe Lansdale. Yeah. I mean, the man, the man is a legend. I spoke, I spoke to, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the person who made me most nervous. That's an in, a more interesting answer. The person mm-hmm. who, who I was really nervous to speak to was Carmen Maria Machado. Yeah. Uh, because I read her book in the dream house, which for those who don't know, is this kind of memoir that plays with what a memoir can do by being really experimental every chapter is like a different genre but still telling this this um very very personal story about um a, 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 an abusive relationship that she had with a woman um mm-hmm. and when you read that book it's like it's like reading someone's diary and then you yeah. read her fiction and you realize that all of her fiction once you've read that book is kind of also autobiographical so when it came to speaking to her, I felt like I was literally asking someone to bear their soul live on air. Like I was asking, I felt like I was asking questions yeah. about her sex life and about her, her mental state and her therapy and her trauma. And I was like, Jesus, this is really, it, I felt like I was being really personal and really quite um, penetrative. Um, so yeah, that was the one. That made, I mean, she was she was really nice about it and was ca- happy to talk, but I was really nervous about that one. Yeah, I I could totally see how that would be nerve wracking. Um, and for me, like you know, she's such a great author, and um, you know, I love her work. But yeah, like those types of questions, especially for someone like me, like I don't know if I could do it. Even though you know, like you said, it's it's in the book. You know, it's. Mm-hmm that's part of the work but yeah i don't know that i could do that either i mean i probably could but yeah i would i would definitely be extremely nervous like you said (laughs) so do you still get nervous oh yeah every every week um you know we've been doing this now oh my mind's going blank i want to say close to three years i know Mm -hmm. we're close to if not at 200 episodes but yeah 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 especially for me unless it's a returning guest for me usually what it is is kind of like the lead up all week i'll be fine saturday hits especially the day that's when the nerves kick in and then i'm like okay and like you know we don't really script out too many questions or anything we might have i usually come up with a couple talking points um, but I'm like, am I going to have enough? Like, am I going to run out of things to say in the first 10 minutes? Um, and then, you know, like right before the podcast, it's like, OK, and the nerves are there. And then usually within like two or three minutes, it all goes away. And, you yeah. know, it helps it helps uh, having Shane there, too, because, you know, if there's a day where, you know, usually it's not the nerves. But if I kind of just blank or whatever, he's there to kind of grab me. And, you know, back me up and vice versa. So it's not as bad. But, yeah, pretty much pretty much every week. But once things get rolling, it's a lot more comfortable. Yeah, I found that, the you know, ed- I, I also remember that I can edit this. That's the thing now. Yeah. I know, I, I, in the early days, I forgot that, like, 
what I recorded isn't always what went out. And if I stutter or repeat or I mean, I hate my accent, for example. I think my accent is like a typewriter being kicked downstairs. Um, <laughs> so that makes me a bit awkward. But I mean, people seem to like it in America. Strangely, I've got way more American guests than British guests. It baffles me. Um, but I, yeah, the, the, the edit and audacity is, is my friend, I think. I think I come across mm-hmm. a lot more professional than I actually am, <laughs> which is why <laughs> this makes me nervous because you've got the edit controls. Oh yeah, yeah, Shane. Um, I I don't really know how to do it. Um, Shane does. He does a great job with it. But um, one thing that I thought was interesting was, you know, you had kind of said that, you know, you have more listeners in the U.S. than you do yeah. over there. It's funny you say that, and I I don't know why this is, but, um, you know, not too long ago, we looked at, like, our stats, and, you know, just to kind of see, it's not something we track very regularly, you know, for better or for worse, but we got, like, a year-end thing, I want to say, like, the end of 2020, and an overwhelming majority of our listeners are from the UK. Really? Well, that is interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what it is. So when you said that, I thought it was interesting because I'm like, you know, our listenership, you know, in the UK is like way higher by a lot. So I just thought it was interesting that for you, it was the reverse. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is where we need to kind of, you know, play off each other's audience a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A bit of cross promotion, um, yeah. Yeah, and, that, and that's one of the cool things about, you know, doing this episode in particular is, you know, I feel like sometimes, you know, everyone's great about supporting other things, you know, that everybody's doing. But I I think it's kind of cool to, you know, to be able to actually kind of interact with people who are, you know, that you might know on Twitter and are doing kind of the mm-hmm. same thing. Because um, like you said, it it helps everybody, but it's also cool to, you know, put like a, uh, a voice to an avatar, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and one thing I wanted to ask you about, speaking of kind of like the uh, avatar thing, is like I had noticed on Twitter um, that it said that you had a Ph.D. in Gothic and I am terrible at picking up like if someone's being totally serious because like you know sometimes people word things a certain way so i i wanted when i knew you were coming on i had to ask you know if you did have a phd in gothic uh yeah i actually do um which trust me does not make you the coolest guy at the party um (laughs) yeah no basically i i when I was in my late 20s, I, I went to Stirling University, which is a tiny town in Scotland near Edinburgh, Glasgow, uh, which at the time was like the global centre for Gothic studies. Um, and I, I went there and I spent four years driving myself slowly insane writing <laughs> about. Um, I think, it's, it's, honestly, it's like I've blanked this stuff out. Um, I think the title of my thesis was The New Labyrinth text and textuality in contemporary gothic fiction so i basically wrote like 120,000 words about gothic metafiction which is about as dull as i've made it sound <laughs> you know what um for especially for the audience that we have both 
for Ink Heist and Talking Scared. I don't think that it, I think it sounds really interesting. And I'm sure, <laughs> you know, we'll agree because, you know, that's something that we're so passionate about. Yeah. And yeah. I was, and just out of curiosity, you know, what kind of led you on the path to, you know, a PhD in, um, you know, in gothic fiction? Um, because basically I am no good at anything but reading books. Um, I actually, in an apocalypse, I'm the first one to die. Um, but basically I, well, how do I, how do I answer that question? Right. Here's, I'll tell you what, here's, here's the poetic answer, but there's a degree of truth to this. The two things that led me to who I am today in terms of being obsessed by the things I'm obsessed by are Stephen King and Bruce Springsteen. And that 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 is the truth. So when I was 13, I read Stephen King's It, which remains my favourite book, um, so much so that I want to get some of the final lines tattooed on myself. Um, so I read Stephen King's It and then I developed a lifelong love of Stephen King. Uh, and then when I was 16, I, list, I, I, I was babysitting my niece for my sister and I unearthed her like collection of Bruce Springsteen albums and I put them on and was just blown away by it. And and it, it kind of fostered a lifelong obsession with sort of American storytelling, I suppose, would be the, mm-hmm. the way to pull those two things together. And this this myth of America and this this um, idea of, of America that I don't know if it exists or not. I've spent a lot of time in the States kind of bumming around with a backpack. And, and Main Street USA still fascinates me, that that pervasive idea. Um, and that just led me to be, become obsessed by American folklore and American Gothic and all of those things. And I've always had a macabre mind. I've always been up as a little boy. I was obsessed by monsters and, and cryptozoology and Bigfoot and, and stuff like that and ghost stories. I've always been obsessed by that stuff. Um, and then in a more prosaic way, English and, and, and literature and stuff genuinely is the only thing I'm good at. I don't really have any other skills, but I'm, I, th- I think I'm a good writer and I, I, I'm a I'm a good critic. Um, so it just with with those two kind of loves, Bruce Springsteen and Stephen King in the back of my mind and, and a very minor skill set. It was just a bit of a conveyor belt that took me inexorably towards further education. <laughs> you know, that that's kind of a. That's kind of a cool story. Um, I know you said it was like the poetic answer, but, you know, um, it, it's fascinating that, you know, you were able to take that passion for things that you had and, you know, be able to study it and, you know, basically follow your passions. You know, I I kind of had the same experience, but uh, it, it didn't uh, didn't turn out quite as uh, <laughs> as good as I had hoped. Um, what, you, what, a PhD, you mean? No, no. I just mean kind of following my uh, my passions. You know, I used to be I use this term extremely, extremely loosely um, a music journalist um, okay. for a pretty a pretty well-known uh, like punk music website. And um, I was like, you know what? I'm going to I changed my major. I was going to be a history teacher. And then after my first year of college, I was like, you know what? I'm going to become a journalism major. And, you know, that was still right around the time, you know, journalism was OK. And, you know, it was like right around the time that it started becoming digital. And a lot of those 
a lot of those uh, problems. And needless to say, I uh, I don't do music journalism, but I will say it kind of helped lead me to doing what I do now. Um, but more importantly, um, you know, I find it fascinating because a lot of us, you know, are fans only. Um, you know, we might have a lot of knowledge just through things we've read or things like that. And I was wondering, because I feel like it comes across really well in your show, um, Talking Scared, I feel like, you know, it's a little bit different because you're a fan, but you've also kind of got this extensive knowledge to kind of draw from. And I was just kind of curious, what was it like for you, you know, actually getting your PhD? Um, I know it's a big accomplishment, but sometimes when you take like your passion and then you study it like very intensely, you know, sometimes it can get a bit rocky. Did that ever happen hmm. for you or was it pretty much, you know, all good? I, I think ooh, no, it was very not good. It was very not good. I, um, I, I, I often joke about this, but I am being serious. I came very, very close to a nervous breakdown. Um, and I really don't mind talking about it because in hindsight, it's pretty funny. Um, but I, I so I basically did my PhD. I, I had one year that was good. And then my supervisor went on long term sabbatical and then went on sick. So I basically I was paying thousands of pounds. I'm just writing this thing on my own. I may as well just sat in my in my bedroom and just not paid and written a book. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And then in my fourth year, because you you can the way it works, you 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 have to take three years. You can take a fourth year in the UK. Um, you take your fourth year. Six months from the end, all I'd had is like cursory feedback that yeah, this is good. This is good. This is good. Six months to go. I get an email one day that simply just says that my supervisor had retired immediately and I had a new supervisor and that supervisor read my thing and was like, this all needs changing. So I, I basically wrote a thesis in about eight months and I wow. moved home to my parents near Manchester. I moved home with them again, like a living cliche and for for six to eight months, I spent 14 hours a day at the bottom of the garden in my dad's garden shed. And I would I would go in there at like noon and I would write till sometime between two and four in the morning. And I would go to bed and I would get up and I repeated it for months and months and months. And with, with 72 hours to go. So you got to bear in mind, most people hand these things in and they've spent six weeks editing. You know, I didn't even spell mm-hmm. check it. I I was still I had 72 hours to go and I was still writing. And my mum and dad came home from the pub. What? Now, I have no memory of this. My mum says she came home from the pub to find me in, in a fetal position in the living room, just weeping. <laughs> like I have no memory of it whatsoever. And then I was I was still writing at 6 a.m. on the day it had to be handed in. And I was a five hour train ride from the place where it had to be handed in. And I literally just wrote the end. And then my mum drove me to the train station and I was trying to buy a ticket and I couldn't even read. My brain was so fucked. I couldn't even read the timetable. And my mum was like, I need to come with you. So I was 30 years old. 
and my mum had to take me by the hand and take me to Scotland on the train so I could hand in my thesis that I'd finished writing that morning after four years of work. So, yeah, it was pretty rocky. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds intense because, like, I, you know, like I well, said, I... Let, 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 let me just jump in, Rich. Let me tell you one thing that will give you an idea of how close to the edge I was. I've told this story on a, on my own show, but it, it still makes me laugh. Like I say, I, I was 30 and I was writing about horror and stuff. I was living horror. And I went to bed one night and I had a nightmare about Freddy Krueger, right? Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Nightmare about Freddy Krueger. And for like months, at 30 years old, I became frightened to go to sleep in case a man who doesn't exist killed me in my dreams. Because I just lost the plot. I'd lost the ability to think rationally. So, yeah, everyone do a PhD, kids. It's great. It's really healthy. It's good. You'll enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, that's that sounds intense. Like I said, I, I've i known a few people who have kind of done PhDs and like I know how much work goes into it. So, you know, I it's totally understandable, you know, that it would kind of bring you to that place to, you know, kind of do it the way that you had done it. Yeah, yeah, just just a broken man. The the funny thing is, I I also don't really like to mention it on my show because I have I have friends like old friends of mine, you know, friends I've had for twenty years who listen to the show, and every week mm-hmm. they 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 say that I managed to crowbar having a PhD into the conversation, and they've started like <laughs> a kind of a betting game now where they they have they have like a, a a bet at what minute in the show I will mention my thesis, and I get mercilessly mocked every single week. <laughs> you gotta love friends i mean yeah. i guess that shows how close you guys are um oh yeah if they listen to this i'm screwed this is like a year's <laughs> worth of mockery <laughs> yeah um and you know i th- i feel like too because i've listened to your show and i've i think i've heard reference to it but i don't think it's anything uh anything you know crowbarred in there but what i will say is you know i feel like that's one of the things that kind of you know is like special to your show like all of us that do these podcasts we all have you know our kind of you know special thing um and i feel like one of yours is just kind of like the level of analysis that you kind of bring to you know whatever guests that you're having on um like I just listened to one with uh, Eric LaRocca the other day, and, mm. you know, that was a great example of it, kind of how, you know, deep you dove into it. And especially for someone like me, you know, and like it comes off very naturally um, how you do it. But, you know, especially for someone like me, like I always joke, you know, I've written tons of reviews but I always joke that, you know, I'll read a book that's like so good. And then when I'm done, I'm like, OK, yeah, I'm going to write something about it. And it seems like all my brain can fire off is like, yeah, this this book is really good. This book is awesome. And like, That's pretty much the start and the end. <laughs> yeah, but that's pretty much what academics are saying. They just they just use like polysyllabic words to do it. You know, like it's the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Like no one's really saying anything of any interest. You know, basically, the the most important thing I would say is still, did you enjoy it? Anything beyond that is just, you know, 
the cherry on top. So I, I think criticism, essentially, the only thing that is important is did you enjoy it? Is it good or not? Anything else? Fucking calm down, mate. It doesn't really need saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I like I said, some like a lot of the episodes, like just kind of the deep dive that you kind of take on, you know, the books um, that you're talking about and, you know, the guest works, it might be more than one book, but Mm -hmm. that's another thing, you know, everyone kind of has their own process. When you have guests on the show, do you kind of do like a lot of like preparation? Like, do you come up with like a giant list of questions? Do you do like talking points? Like what is your process for preparing a show? um so it's a bit of a it's it's hard work because i have to read like a book a week you know and and if i fall behind it get i mean i'm in the middle of a crisis at the minute because um i'm i'm interviewing brian evanson on wednesday and i'm interviewing richard chismar on monday and that's fine because i've got time to read those books but i've also been asked by the guardian to review stephen king's new book billy summers so I basically okay. have to read like three books by a week on Monday, you know, and, 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 and write questions and do research. So it gets hard, you know, um, mm-hmm. but basically I try and I, I, I always read the book. Like I, I think there's a lot of podcasts out there, um, not yours and none of the people that we I think we none of the people we listen to. But I know there are <laughs> literary podcasts out there that you can tell they haven't read the book. You know, it's like often the, the celebrity ones where the, the host is, is himself a celebrity. You can tell they haven't read the book. You can tell they've had, they've had an assistant given the spark note version. Um, I think it's I think it's the highest disrespect. So I always read the book. Um, if I can, I will read other stuff by them if I haven't already. Don't always have a chance to do that. Um, and then I, 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 I try and read, you know, a good handful of other interviews that the author has done because i like to ask them different questions you know because you you read a lot of this stuff with the same stuff i like to ask them different questions and 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 i tend to write not so much i don't really write like a, li- a list of questions i write like you say a list of talking points um and i i try and imagine how the conversation will go so that i can make them flow so that one kind of leads into the next and weirdly it tends to work that way Sometimes yeah. I kind of get caught out and um, I'm, tr- I'm trying to get better at asking things on the fly because I've noticed sometimes when I'm doing my show that I will I'll ask a question and the author will give a really interesting answer that goes in a different direction. And rather than pursuing that different direction, I get quite fixated on my structure. So I need to get better. I think it comes back to that confidence thing. I need to get better at going where the conversation takes me. Uh, yeah, that's 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 my my learning curve for the near future. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because like, you know, I definitely do that too. Um, and part of it is, you know, just like nerves, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'll have my talking points. And then, like you said, you know, you're listening and, and too, sometimes like the guests, like, like you said, they give such a great answer and like, especially me, I wouldn't say like starstruck, but you're just like, they give such a great answer and you're like, you're a fan of their work and you're like, oh my God, like, this is great. And like, you're listening, but 
like part of it is like confidence on like okay i i don't know if i should go down here or depending on like the answer there's like a bunch of different branches and then it's like okay which one of these do i want to pursue yeah yeah (laughs) yeah I, i have a tendency to say things like okay I've got three questions off the back of that, and then I ask them all, <laughs> and and then they can, you can tell the guys just like, what do you want to say? If you just asked me like fifteen minutes worth of questions in one go, and I, I, I'm also I'm also really bad at the um, the statement that tails off without including a question. So quite often you'll hear me say things like, I'll come off on some long-winded theory of my own, and then I'll realise don't have a question i just give this kind of weak sort of so what do you think (laughs) it's just just like oh come on neil think of a question (laughs) yeah and you know i only i laugh because like i do some of the same things especially the multiple question things and (laughs) i try not to do it um but you know, sometimes it's just too hard. And then like, I'll just joke mm-hmm. and I'll say, you know, that's like my, uh, that's like my quote unquote thing. Cause like, I'll start out with like one question and then I'll just kind of like wrap up, like you said, like three or four other questions in that. And then sometimes I'm like, what, what have I done? Like, they're going to be like, <laughs> yeah. start first. <laughs> yeah, completely. I do it all the time. Yeah, I'm quite amateurish, really, but I think I just bumble through. I think because I speak to Americans a lot, I think I just kind of bumble mm-hmm. through with some some like approximation of British charm that kind of gets me somewhere <laughs> at least. I think they do, I think they just think I'm some kind of like you know village idiot who just just uh, <laughs> means well. Yeah, a lot of ingredients nah. in the horror community. No, I I don't think that's it. But, um, you know, you definitely you definitely can't tell um, when you're listening to the episodes. I think it's just one of those things that, like, we ourselves pick up on. Um, And listeners, not so much. Um, But do you have have one? Do you have episodes where you do you have ones where you you kind of end and think I nailed that? And then other ones where you just think for some reason I just wasn't firing on all cylinders. Oh, yeah. All the time. I can't really think of any any concrete ones um, in terms of like not firing on all cylinders, mainly because I feel like, you know, depending on the person, but like you always kind of have a little bit of that. Like, ah, I wish I would ask that question or I wish I would have followed up on that thread. Um, but we've had so many um, episodes, like one, one of my favorite ones, um, and we've had her on the show twice. She's a, uh, a great writer and a great inter- interview guest, um, is V Castro. Um, I yeah, recently, I, 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 I talked to her. I had Violet on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that was especially like, um, the most recent one we did a couple months back, that was one of my favorite ones. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, there's also some embarrassing ones out there. Um, like, <laughs> like I'll never forget, and I'll pro- I'll probably regret sharing this story. But the first time that we had, and I only bring this up because I remembered um, when you were talking with Eric and kind of your uh, your joke about how you said you were Josh's friend and he just doesn't know it yet <laughs> or something along those lines. 
even though I had talked to him a bunch of times, um, we had a show the very first time and I was so not really nervous, but you know, he was one of my favorite writers and, you know, we always, our big thing is like, it's always like you're having a conversation at the bar. So like normally I'll have like a little cooler with some drinks or whatever. Well, that night I decided to, I decided to bring them up into the closet. I think it was pretty hot that evening. So that didn't help, but I basically had a few too many beers. I made it through the episode. Okay. Um, and you know, felt like did a great job, but mostly because it was hot and the nerves, I just went a little bit overboard. And then like, sometimes I'll have like a little, a little post conversation machine. And I was like, yeah, I'm going downstairs. And the next thing you know, I woke up like an hour or so later on the couch down there. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, sometimes it uh, gets a little, you know, you get a little nervous or whatever, but it leads to some leads to some funny things. But <laughs> yeah, jo- Josh Malaman, like I say, he's like. You know, I, I joke and say he's he, he's my best friend. He just doesn't know it yet. But like Josh, Josh Malaman is the most generous, wonderful man I've ever met. Like in this Absolutely. world, like I can't get over because the man's a, the man is a rock star. You know what I mean? He is he is like the closest thing we've got to like a new Stephen King. You know, and mm-hmm. um. And I, I spoke to him once and, and felt like at the end of the conversation, he was like, I wish you, you could come and rent my house for a beer right now. And, and part of me thinks, yeah, of course, he says that to all the podcasters, you know. Um, but ever since then, he's like he, he he's so supportive on social media. He's just the nicest guy. It's 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 crazy mm-hmm. what a cool guy he is. And it's his birthday today. So, you know, well, when we record this, it's his birthday. So happy birthday, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree. He's definitely been, um, you know, like he said, he's just one of the nicest people and a great supporter um, of everybody, writers mm-hmm. and, you know, podcasters and bloggers and everybody, basically. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you um, is like horror. It's obviously got so many different subgenres. It's got you know, everything you could think of. Um, I was just kind of curious, you know, for you, um, what is like your favorite either subgenre or type of horror? Um, that is a difficult question. So <laughs> I know <laughs> like at, at, at the risk of, as I say, more mockery to momentarily go back to my research background. My, my focus there was on very, very postmodern horror and metafiction and things like House of Leaves or mm-hmm. uh what else um so basically i i looked at metafiction from stephen king's misery through to house of leaves and then the kind of the increasing sophistication of the mode um because you know misery is very rudimentarily a book about writing whereas house of leaves is like well you know it's just this you know it turns horror inside itself and like explodes it um and all the points in between so I got obsessed with this really cutting edge, experimental, uh, you know, postmodern, whatever you want to call it, form of horror, which weirdly is the complete opposite of my taste, because 
<laughs> what what I love is a you, you said before you want this podcast to feel like you're having a conversation at a bar. I'm not sure it counts as a subgenre or anything, but I love stories that feel like an anecdote I'm being told at, at a bar or, you know, so mm-hmm. things. Let me think of examples. So things like, um, well, I love all Stephen King. I mean, I'm obsessed by the man. I once spent an entire year reading nothing but Stephen King books in order. I've, I've read them all before, but I read them all again in like just just a, a, a chronological order. I mean, I'm, I am obsessed by Stephen King. So if he is a subgenre in himself, that's what I like. But the books of his I love the most are things like um, the weird one from a Buick 8, which gets no love because it just feels like a story you're being told, you know, at the bar on a Friday night. Um, and I love michael marshall smith because his stories feel the same i love joel lansdale because his uh, stories feel the same but i suppose if i had to pick a subgenre, it would be coming of age horror that's the thing that always makes me stand up and take attention pay attention if something is about kids facing adversity in a summer ideally set sometime in the past um that really floats my boat I, i don't know why I think I mean I think I'm in love with this idea of the perfect American childhood, and I wish I'd had mm-hmm. one. Um, so I'm always chasing that. So like you know, McCammon's Boy's Life, obviously Stephen King's It, The Body, um, anything like that, just love it. Cannot get enough of it. Yeah, yeah, those are um, those are all great books, and you know especially being a big Stephen King fan. Um, like how you said, even like how from a Buick gate doesn't get a lot of love. I feel like, like, cause I'm obviously, and I think most horror fans are fans of his work, mm-hmm. you know, the works of his that I've always been drawn to and don't get me wrong. His horror books are great. Is ironically like if you look at just the mainstream especially a lot of people will say that his work has kind of tailed off like oh you know all of his later books after the 80s are garbage or mm-hmm. you know since x but like a lot of my favorite books of his aren't even really horror per se like one of my favorite books not just of his but in general is joyland and um, even eleven twenty two sixty three, you know, th- I, another. You are book. speaking my language. You are speaking <laughs> my language. So, so right, very quickly, top three king, right? Very top it. Second, Wizard and Glass from the Dark Tower. Third, eleven twenty two sixty three, right? I think people mm-hmm. who say Stephen King can't write endings. The ending to eleven twenty two sixty three is one of the greatest endings in fiction. I just think mm-hmm. it's, it's it's not it's not the ending you want, but for me it's it's is the it's one of the few books I've read where the ending is truly inevitable and perfect as as tragic as it may be. Um, Joyland, weirdly, is the book that I read that day. I, that that day I just described to you with my breakdown and the long train ride to hand in my PhD. When I got mm-hmm. home. I went to bed. I didn't get out of bed for 48 hours and I spent an entire day without getting out of bed reading Joyland. And it's one of the one of the most well, 
not to pun, but joyous reading experiences of my life. Um, mm-hmm. So I totally agree with you. Um, Stephen King in there's a there's a running refrain where I say this thing on my show whenever Steve, Stephen King comes up, which he does often. And I say that I don't actually think Stephen King is a horror writer. I think Stephen King is a, is a traditional American realist who just happens to write about vampires. I think the thing yeah. that makes Stephen King the writer he is, is that he can write about human experience and weirdly it's all the good stuff it's the bravery and it's the you know the Stephen King loves the word stand and it's that that quote from it where he says it doesn't matter um where you get to it just matters that you're still standing when you get there and I think that that one sentence is Stephen King's oeuvre in a nutshell it's about facing the horrors of the world may they whether they be you know vampires or the IRS and and facing mm-hmm. it with bravery and loyalty and all, all the good stuff about life. So I think he's actually a very positive writer, a human writer, a very realistic writer who just happens to write about vampires and haunted cars. Um, but that's just my little sorry. That, that was a bit of a rant there. Sorry, Rich. But what I will no. say, no, everything fine. everything you've just said about what you like in his books, Billy Summers, his new one. I'm currently reading it because I got an advanced copy from Hodder. His Billy Summers is exactly that it's not a horror novel at all it's it's it reads like i tell you what it reads like it reads like 11 60 11 22 63 written from lee harvey oswald's perspective that's what it reads like you'll love it because it's exactly what you just said that sounds awesome and i mean that one was already like an anticipated book for me but definitely even more so now um you know, not just not just what you said about like kind of how it's written like eleven twenty two sixty three, but from like another perspective. But just like like again, like I love his horror stuff, but there's just something about and you know, you kind of touched on it about the way he kind of writes, you know, like his characters and just kind of that ease to some of his writing style. That's the best way I can describe it. In like it comes through a lot in his non-horror stuff, I think. Um, and, you know, it's kind of funny. Like, there's a lot of people who like Joyland, um, but that you had said it was one of the best reading experiences you had. Um, you know, that was kind of the same thing for me. And, like, that's always a thing that I always kind of find fascinating about horror because, you know, even books that are loaded with, um, you know, monsters or, you know, ghosts or whatever, whatever topic pops up in there. A lot of my favorite horror books, if you kind of just and like the characters internal dialogue, if you kind of just stripped out those supernatural elements, um, if it is, in fact, a supernatural horror story. You know, it's still very relatable Um, Mm -hmm. and like just kind of like the experiences that you can bring to a book, like a good example, because I'm doing a horrific job of describing it is when I read Malfi's The Night Parade. Um, I I haven't read that one. That's the one with the kind of the um, the crazy sickness, right? Yeah, yeah, and I I won't get too uh, deep into it um, because I don't want to spoil it, but it's a great book, but basically it kind of centers around 
and this is kind of what I'm talking about, you know, there's this crazy virus and there's all kinds of crazy things that happen throughout the book. But really what I kind of attached to in, in that book was the two main characters. You know, it's a father and his young daughter. And just the fact that, like, when I was reading it, like, we had just found out that uh, we were going to have our daughter. Um, and, like, just reading that book with that kind of, like, stuff going on in my life, um, it, it just made for, like, such a great reading experience. And that's what I mean is, like, all the other stuff was great as far as the virus and everything else. But even if you were to just strip all of that out and you focused on those two characters, you know, it still would have been a great read. Yeah. Have you, so you've got kids, like, have you found Mm -hmm. that, because I I don't have children, have you found that having children has made you more susceptible to horror? Or has it changed your reading experience? Um, For me, not so much. Um, I mean... It's kind of hard to describe, like you obviously have uh, some of those concerns, you know, because you think about things that you never really thought about before. Um, but no, not it hasn't really changed my reading experience per se, um, you know, like it has in a way. And again, I don't want to spoil any particular book, but like there's a book I had read just recently Um where you know it's these people and they're you know they're kind of going head to head with a group of bad people and like their child gets kidnapped and like that kind of stuff does kind of scare you as a parent but i guess Mm -hmm. like in fiction for me it doesn't really impact me because even though i suspend my disbelief while i'm reading it in the back of my mind i don't really think about how that would correlate in um in real life so you're very lucky because i used to be impervious to all things and then i got married and i well Mm -hmm. two things happened in my life one i got married like i think it's three years ago i hope the wives don't listen to this because that's that's pretty (laughs) bad um covid's fucked up my sense of time entirely um i think it was three years ago and and i got a dog um and I talk about my dog way too much. I talk about my dog more than my PhD. Um, and, <laughs> and, and I've just become like just a wreck. Like I just I cry at everything. If I see anything now, anything at all with anything happening to, to an animal, I'm just in bits. I've become vegetarian because I got a dog. And like and you mentioned Ronald, um, Ronald Malfi. Have you read Come With Me, his newest? I that I'm starting that very soon. I just got my copy this week. Oh, it's brilliant, man. Like he's the next guest on my show. I'm, I'm I was editing his his interview tonight, actually. Um, I'd never read him before or no, I'd read Snow. I I, I didn't realize that was by him, though. But I, I thought I had read mm-hmm. him by him before. And and come with me. It's just wonderful. Um, and it's wonderful for the, all the things we've talked about that that, that focus on the, the the human element and and it feels kind of like an 80s Stephen King novel. Um, but obviously it's it's on the synopsis, it's on the back cover, so it's not going to be a spoiler. But his wife dies, and and there's this mm-hmm. there's this beautiful sentence in it where he he actually actually quoted on my show where he writes this thing. He says that you know. Um, we never think that the person we plan to spend the rest of our life with that there is a cosmic clock that counts down the days hours you know seconds etc 
until that person mm-hmm. leaves. And it just it's like it was like a punch to the solar plexus because ever since I got married, all the stuff that I used to just like skim past in a book, that's the mother load now. Like I can't the the the, the thought of loss bothers me way more and, and horror is kind of about loss i suppose you could say that loss is the horror that underpins everything and i am way more susceptible to it way more and that's even before i start talking about my dog <laughs> yeah and, and you know it's interesting because when you had asked me that question like my first thought was going straight to kind of like fear um you know which a lot of times we'll say depending on people's views with horror, you know, we'll say like, you know, it's not necessarily about the scares. And yet that was what I had immediately uh, jumped to. But <laughs> again, without spoiling it, that the, the night parade book by Malfi, you know, just reading that book, um, you know, like, yeah, when I got done for a variety of different reasons, like, yeah, it made me, it made me real emotional um, mm. and kind of any story I've read recently what uh, that kind of involves like, you know, parents and their kids, like it doesn't necessarily have to be like something bad happens to one or the other. But yeah, it definitely does. Uh, it definitely does hit you a little harder. Like you were saying, um, you know, certain things that, you know, it might not necessarily be fear or something you're worried about, but it definitely kind of messes with your emotions a little bit more. Uh, have you read, um, we mentioned right at the start, have you read Paul Tremblay's Cabin at the End of the World? That one I have not. Um, I Ooh. have it. And see, this is one of those things, and I'm sure that you can relate, is <laughs> like um, how you had mentioned you know, when you're reading stuff kind of for the show and you want to kind of stay on schedule, like I will mix in um, books to just read. Um, But like I have a very, very bad book addiction, I guess you could say. Like I, I have thousands of these books that I own and I, I love the writers and I'm very excited to read them, but then I just keep accumulating more <laughs> and then it's like, yeah. oh, I have it. I'm like, I've had this book. Why haven't I read it? And then the time just gets away from you. <laughs> yeah. Completely. I mean, I have no time to read anything off schedule at all. I haven't read a book that's not for the show in, in a year now, but honestly, man, everything we just talked about the cabin end of the world I, I think it may be the most brutal book ever written for parents oh no that that both has me intrigued and frightened <laughs> well tread tread very carefully i always say that no book has ever frightened me as much as a head full of ghosts right that book scared me more than any other book um I think it's I think that's the greatest horror novel of this century, A Head Full of Ghosts. But Cabinet in the World is 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 way more upsetting. Fucking hell. It is it is just devastating. <laughs> yeah, and that that's what I've kind of heard. And, you know, yeah. I'm de- I'm definitely excited to kind of dive into that one. But you know it's it's interesting like when people ask me like you know i've been watching horror movies since i was very very little 
for better or for worse. <laughs> like we're yeah. talking about elementary school age and you know, yeah. like I I saw everything you could think of, but for books, like it takes a lot for me to get legitimately scared. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. even say that it scared me in a traditional sense. But I will say the book that has messed with me the most is actually one of the books you had kind of mentioned, you know, with when you were working on your Ph.D. and stuff. And that would be House of Leaves. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know what it was about that book. And it wasn't even a conscious thing. But I had gotten so wrapped up in it that, like, it just it just gave me like this feeling and like I had finished reading it on like an airplane and like I had, I'd fallen asleep to like take a nap and like, I can't remember like the dream or anything, but it did have to do with the book. And I just sat bolt upright and I was like, this book is going to be like the one that, you know, has scarred me basically. And I don't know why, because it's not what you would consider like traditionally scary, but I don't know if it's a format or yeah, it could be the format or something. There's a, there's a, there's a part of that book where, um, I mean, it's quite complicated for those who haven't read it. It's almost too complicated to explain to you, but there's a part in that book where Johnny Truant, like, you know, if you've read it, you know, and, um, he's talking Mm -hmm. about, so he's, he's reading the Navidson report. And then there's a part where he, he starts to think that things are happening in his reality. And then he says to you, the reader, there's a bit where he goes, um, I can't remember the exact wording, but he says, like, there is a, there is a, something that's coming for you and it won't be now and it won't be tomorrow. But at some point in the future, it will come for you and you will know it's happening because the lights will start to dim and you'll get you'll feel a sort of sense of panic and you'll know it's coming for you and i think that's just so smart because basically that's just kind of giving the reader an endless neurosis do you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's not like a media it's like right you can worry about this now for the rest of your life if you want to um yeah it's a cruel book <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you know it's funny because i had read it so long ago and who knows maybe i will reread it at some point but after that experience, I was like, I don't know if I'll ever reread this again. Years and years ago. And I had forgotten that line. But, you know, that could have been the line that got me. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I said, I, I just sat bolt upright from a nap. And I was just like, nope. Yeah. I don't know if we're going to reread this. <laughs> yeah. And the scariest thing about the book for me is that I, I remember one. I found myself sitting in my office on a Saturday morning at 8 a.m cracking a cold you know there's a page where you've got to take the first mm-hmm. letter from every word and create a cold and i just sort of thought to myself like what am i doing with my life <laughs> yeah it, it's funny you mention that because i'm such a i'm such like a like i can only read one book at a time i have to read you know from start to finish so that book just as a reading yeah. experience, I enjoyed it, but it just it just ruined me because I'm like, okay, I normally one book at a time, start to finish, but then you're reading that book 
And, you know, it's like you got the main narrative, then you've got a footnote, and then you're like, oh, I got to jump to this page. And, oh, look, there's another footnote and kind of a sub-narrative over here. And it, for somebody who's very regimented, like, okay, I'm only going to read one book at a time and, you know, just go start to finish and I won't read anything else until then, it was just brutal. (laughs) While we're on books, can I... Can I kind of quite um, cheekily just throw in a recommendation for your readers, for your your listeners? Absolutely. You can throw in as many recommendations as you want. So basically, there is a book. I interviewed the author and we've become friends, right? And obviously, I want to promote this book because we are friends. But I also want to promote it because it didn't get anywhere near the love it deserved, right? And it really... so. And it's out in the US now and it's out in the UK. It came out, I think, in February. And it's a book called Last One at the Party. Now, my any of my listeners listening to this, I apologise that you have to hear this ad nauseum every time I speak to anybody. Um, <laughs> but for people who haven't listened to me witter on before, it, it's basically it's Bethany Clift is the author. And she wrote this book and it's one of the most upsetting books I've read in a long, long time. And I don't even think that Beth knew how upsetting it was. But the trouble is, not enough people are reading it because of the marketing behind it, the marketing strategy, which is really off. So essentially, right, this is the plot. There's a pandemic. It's called 6DM, which means if you get it, you've got six days maximum and then you die in an horrendous way. Everyone, presumably in the world, but certainly in the UK, dies except for one woman who is this She's not a she's not a hero. She's a kind of like underachieving bit of a loser. Really. She's kind of like Bridget Jones. She's that kind of, you know, character, quite realistic. And and the novel is basically about her trying to survive totally alone in the ruins of society. And it's horrible. I mean, there's one scene where she goes to a zoo and finds these animals that have been left behind. And I cannot get it out of my brain. It upsets me so much. When I finished the book, I sat bolt upright in bed, looked at my dog and burst into tears. Anyway, but um, but the trouble is, it's quite an interesting story. The way it was presented, the the cover is designed to look like a piece of really, really, really lightweight chick lit. So it's all like champagne flutes and like pink dresses and and bows and and stars. It's like glitzy. And they've done it to yeah. kind of, you know, subvert expectations. But I don't think they've done it enough to actually convert horror authors. So I think horror, sorry, horror readers think it's chit lit and people who want chit lit are then horrified by the horror. And what I'm basically saying yeah. is it's called it's it's called Last One at the Party by Bethany Clift. And if anyone's got the stomach for a pandemic novel in these weird days, please read it because Beth is a friend of mine and i love her novel and i want everyone to to read it (laughs) yeah and you know it's funny because once you started describing it i did look it up and i i see what you mean like about the cover like if you look at the cover like if i was just in the store i wouldn't really i wouldn't really like you said be expecting the horror part of it no so like if i had picked it up i would have been terrified but Based off the description you gave, that sounds right up my alley. And no joke, I'm gonna 
I'm going to order a copy as soon as we uh, as soon as we wrap up. Excellent. It Let sounds- me know what you think of it. Let me know what you think of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it mm. sounds great. And, um, you know, I know it's late where you are, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. But, yeah, um, one of my favorite things, um, especially recently, is always recommendations. So you did a great one for the last one at the party. And I'm just curious, you know, what are some other books? They can be newer, they can be older. But if, you know, any books that you want listeners to know, in addition to uh, Last One at the Party, that you think, okay. you know, deserve to be read? So, obviously, some I've, I've read some great books recently. So I've read, like, The Book of Accidents by Chuck Wendig. I've read Come With Me by Ronald Malfi. Um, they're going to get read anyway. I, I They don't need me to sell those books. You know what I mean? Um so I'm not going to talk about them. Some of the books that have impressed me that have really kind of stuck in my mind are books that have been on the show, but that haven't been really kind of firmly in the horror demograph. Um, because I, I, I quite intentionally called my show Talking Scared rather than Talking Horror mm-hmm. because I want I want a broader remit, you know, so I want to be able to talk about something that is more of a thriller perhaps or something as long as it's about fear and horrible things it doesn't need to be marketed as horror to be on my show and that's quite an important distinction Uh, but it's led to me to read some things that I probably may not have picked up or that horror fans may not necessarily pick up and the two that immediately spring to mind um this is recent books are um way back in January there was a book that came out by a guy called Will Dean called um the last thing to burn uh and quite frankly it's the best book i've read in about five years um and it's just a story set in england set in a very particular part of england and it's about a man who was basically taken a woman an, uh, an immigrant woman and he's keeping her in his house against her will and terrible things ensue but it's just this kind of chamber piece between this man and this woman and this kind of um i suppose it's not a spoiler to say kind of sexual um slavery and it is as dark as it sounds don't get me wrong it's not a light-hearted book it's only short i read it in like two sittings it's the best book i've read in years it's just wonderful that's all i can say about it it's called the last thing to burn by will dean and the the other one that comes to mind from the show, again, only tangentially horror, is by Zakia Galila Smith called The Other Black Girl. Have you heard of this one? Yeah, yeah, I've been meaning to check that one out. Yeah, it's um it's kind of similar to Get Out. Um and I don't mean that in the sense that it's about it's about racial politics, even though it is. Everyone's compared it to Get Out, but for me, it's comparison to Get Out is not so much that it's about um black and white you know dynamics and politics in the us is that it's got that weird kind of twilight zone feel to it that isn't quite horror but is very unsettling uh but and i loved it because it, it basically taught me loads of stuff about a culture that i was completely an experience, I suppose, rather than the culture, like a lived experience that I was completely oblivious to, sort of like, you know, a 20 something black woman in in Manhattan. And, and, and it's cool. You read about like, you know, the cultural importance of hairstyles, for example, 
uh, and stuff mm-hmm. like that, which I had no idea was so sort of profound. And and I, I literally read it and I literally learned things from it. And I spoke to Zakir and, and it was really, you talk about being nervous before. I was nervous on that mm-hmm. one because I'd just spoken to Tanan and Reedu. And then I spoke to Zakia and I, I was realizing that it was like, oh, I'm having conversations with writers of color. And now all I'm doing is asking them about what's it like being a writer of color. And and, and I was like, I, I need to not be the white guy saying, explain your life to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But but Zakia was delightful. And her book, The Other Black Girl. Yeah, it's just a it's just a really fun read. It's really fun. Um, but you will come away from it having genuinely had your eyes opened um in a really non-preachy way yeah love those two books uh and and yeah yeah they're great awesome yeah i i definitely am gonna check all of those out and i feel like people if they need like a hype person they should definitely come to you especially um among other (laughs) people like you and shane both Shane, anytime he tells me to read something, I do it. And then hearing you describe these books, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm going to add all three of those uh, and order those right away. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, again, like I said, I don't want to keep you too late. So I just want to thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. It was great to be able to, you know, actually two versus you know trading messages on twitter which that is always nice but it's always nice to kind of be able to you know just sit down and talk with somebody and you know put a voice to a name yeah well man it's been an absolute pleasure we'll have to return the favor at some point oh absolutely anytime neil yeah so great no thank uh, you very much yeah and real quick before i let you go because I'm always terrible about this part for all of our listeners. Tell them where they can uh, find you and all things talking scared. Uh, right. So I don't have a website yet because as I mentioned, I don't understand how anything digital works. I've got somebody doing that for me. So that'll be along soon. Um, I lurk on Twitter constantly. So Twitter is at talk scared pod because someone's got talking scared. Hang on. Sorry, just you might have to edit this a bit. Uh, I've got completely yeah. confused by my own Twitter handle. Sorry, just give me one second. I've just got really confused. Ah, right. Let me do yeah. that again. Sorry. Sorry, Rich. I just, uh, it's because there's a bit no, of complexity to it. Right. Um, on Twitter, where I am constantly, that is at talk scared pod because someone has got talking scared pod. So just talk scared pod. On Instagram, it's talking scared pod. And if you want to email me directly, it's talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. But the place I am most commonly is Twitter at TalkScaredPod. Awesome. Thanks again, Neil. Um, it was great. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, sometimes we have guest hosts and, you know, anytime you want to come on, just say the word. It's been great. Oh, amazing, man. No, I would go to any time at all. If ever you need anyone to fill in or if anyone ever drops out or you need someone to jump in, give me a shout. Awesome. Thanks, Neil, and hope you have a good night. Yeah, thank you. Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing? <laughs> <laughs>